First Timothy chapter 1. Thank you for weathering the weather tonight and being here. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. Would you listen as I read the scriptures tonight? And uh, I'll tell you my title in just a minute. But if you look around, if somebody next to you doesn't have a Bible or the King James Version, would you be kind enough to share your Bible with them, make sure ha- they have it? Say amen if you're there. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, pointing me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor, and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord Jesus, of our Lord, was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Thanksgiving is a wonderful time. One of the time of fellowship. Honestly, it's a wonderful time for food. Amen? And we eat a lot. And we eat some more and eat a lot and eat some more. The family got together and had their Thanksgiving dinner. And I think for a lot of us on Thanksgiving dinner, probably the best part is the leftovers. Amen? Because it tastes pretty good the day after there. And they, had the, they, they brought the leftovers out the next day. And everything was out, same thing that they had, the same spread they had the night before when they had Thanksgiving dinner. And a little girl named Jenny was there looking at it, and as her father was about to say thanks for the food, she said, wait, time out. She said, we just gave thanks for that yesterday. Do we have to do it again? And I think that's how a lot of us feel. We feel like we've given thanks before. Do we have to do it again? But I want to say to you, we should give thanks over and over again. And tonight, I want, to, I want you to look at verse 12 with me. And our text, I want to give you, comes from the very first five words. And I thank Christ Jesus. Tonight, I want to preach you just a very simple message. I'm thankful for Jesus. I'm thankful for Jesus. How many are thankful for Jesus tonight? Amen. I'm thankful for Jesus tonight. Father, bless the service now. Help our hearts to be ready to receive the engrafted word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I've said this many times, but I'm going to repeat it again. You know, the the word Thanksgiving is actually a Bible word. The word Thanksgiving, it speaks about the grace of God. We get our word thanks and thanksgiving from the word charis. In uh, 1984 or so, back, uh, actually 83 or so, back uh, when my wife was, uh, found out she was uh, pregnant with our first child, we thought and prayed over a name, and we thought about a name that would be ideal, and we thought about the the Greek word charis, and we named our daughter, our, my oldest daughter, Carice, from that. And the word charis, or if you would, expresses the grace of God, but it also expresses thanks and thanksgiving. If you do a study of the word, the word for thanks and thanksgiving in the New Testament, you'll find that 45 times the Apostle Paul used the word charis to describe thankfulness. Now, why did he do that? Because thanksgiving is an outflow of grace in your heart. It's an outflow of a spirit that's very appreciative. Now, let me say this to you tonight. 
If there's one thing we need to major on and do a better job of, we need to be a thankful people. We need to be thankful Christians. We need, come on, somebody help me tonight. We need to be thankful Christians, thankful for what God has done and is doing in our life. It's a disposition of God's grace. We, uh, when we are thankful, we are doing the will of God. Now, if you're concerned about the will of God, you're not in the will of God if you're not thankful. Listen to what the Bible says. And everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. When we are thankful, we are promoting a spirit of unity in his local New Testament church. Colossians 3.15 says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Paul said in Ephesians 5.20, he speaks about the spirit-filled life, about walking in light, walking circumspectly, walking in the spirit. He said, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you read the epistles, Paul was very thankful, but you can kind of funnel it and narrow it down. Paul was thankful for his friends. Paul was thankful for the churches. Paul was thankful for his infirmities, his afflictions. Paul was thankful for the outgrowth of the gospel. Paul was thankful for those things that were the priorities of his life. And so tonight, as we look at that, I think as I look at verse 12, the greatest, the greatest aspect of thankfulness that Paul possessed, that he was thankful for Jesus. And tonight, I'm thankful for Jesus. And before we leave tonight, I want you to be thankful for Jesus. Notice tonight, before we have testimony time, I want to see some things why I'm thankful for Jesus. Number one, would you write this down? I'm thankful for Jesus because he, is personal. Amen. Jesus is personal. He's not distant. He's not far away. If you're not really close to Jesus, my prayer tonight is that you'd get close to Jesus. He is personal. Look at Paul said, I thank Christ Jesus. He said, I thank Jesus for who he is. He spoke as a man who spent so many hours in prayer with our Lord and Savior. He spoke as a man who knew what it meant to be really saved. He spoke as a man who had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now why am I thankful that Jesus is personal? Well, I think first of all about his incarnation. I think about the incarnation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, Christmas is coming, and the word incarnation is a word that we use quite frequently during the Christmas time. But basically incarnation means God became a man. God became flesh. God was manifest in the flesh. Notice John chapter 1 verse 14 because in John 1 14 it speaks about how personal Jesus Christ come. Hey think about this tonight. Jesus came in the flesh. He came to us. Now, we don't sing this song much. We're going to, well, I mentioned Sunday, we're going to try to get to learn a lot more of the songs in the old hymnal that we have. But one of the songs, it's a great song. We, we don't sing very much, but I'm going to kind of resurrect that here. It's the song, He Came to Me. Because that's the reality of it. Jesus Christ came to us. And the Bible says in John 1:14, and the Word, which was Jesus Christ, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And that's wonderful. The, the, the Bible says here, Christ came down. The Word became flesh. Jesus, who was all eternity, Jesus, who is a spirit, he became a man. He took on, he took on sinful flesh, yet without sin. He became like you and I. He took a upon in the form of a servant was made in the likeness of men. He dwelt among us. Revelation 21, three is so powerful. It says the tabernacle of God dwelt among men. That's a powerful thought because the word dwelt means tabernacle. He was in it, he took upon him the body of a man as his tent, as a tabernacle, yet without sin. God was manifest in the flesh and seen of angels, the Bible says. We beheld his glory, John said, full of grace and truth. I'm thankful tonight Jesus is so personal that he gave 
gave us his incarnation. He came in the flesh. Can you imagine a world we'd be in if Jesus had not come in the flesh yet? Can you imagine that we would still be, the Jews would still be practicing the sacrificial ceremonies and the day of atonement and the Passover for sin? But thank God Jesus Christ is our Passover for sin. And thank God tonight Jesus shed his blood for you and I. And thank God when the fullness of time was come, Jesus came forth. He was born of a virgin, made of a woman, made under the law to redeem us who are under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. You say, what does all that mean? Jesus came for one reason, to die for your sins and mine and that through that, you and I could be brought into the family of God. That's why Paul said in verse 15 of our passage, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's you and that's me. He came into the world to save sinners. And then Paul underscored that by saying, of whom I am the chief of all sinners. Thank God tonight, Jesus came in person through the incarnation. He came to us with passion. He came to us with a purpose, and he came to us personally. Notice, secondly, I'm thankful that he's personal, not just because of his incarnation, but I'm thankful he's personal because of his involvement. Aren't you glad tonight that Jesus is personally involved in your life? Whether you want him to involve your life or not, he is involved with your life, okay? He is personally involved with who you are and what you're doing. I think about when we read through the Gospels, the personal involvement of Jesus Christ he had with people. Now, when you study Jesus, Jesus really had the greatest of all personal ministries because he came up to people. Think with me about this. The very first thing we're mentioned about Jesus, he started his public ministry. He goes near the shoreline of, of the Sea of Galilee, and he calls out these men into himself. He came personally to Andrew. He came personally to Peter. He came personally to those men. He came personally to James and to John. He became personal with these men. He called them by their name. He told them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. We proceed from there and we see Jesus mentioned here at a wedding, the place where he performed his very first wedding. He made a personal appearance at a wedding. I want to tell you, some of you singles who are going to get married in the future or thinking about marriage, do you want Jesus in your wedding? You want Jesus at that ceremony. You want him there. At a time when this wedding had a crisis and on the, and on the backside, that, that couple did not know this, but on the backside, they ran out of wine, and Mary came to Jesus, said, they have no more wine, and he said, he said, woman, my hour has not come. He turns to the servants. He tells them, bring them some pitchers filled with water. They filled up these great, huge pitchers. They held anywhere from 18 to 20 gallons, and the Bible says he turned that into wine, and when you think, well, did he turn to alcoholic wine? No, the word, the word for wine also means grape juice there. In this context, it meant a freshly squeezed grape juice there, refreshing grape juice there, but he was personally involved with them. I think about later on, in that same chapter, that he went back to Cana of Galilee, went from the, from the shoreline of Galilee back to Cana of Galilee, went to the inner part there. And a man came down from Capernaum. He walked about 15 to 20 miles. The Bible calls this man a nobleman. He was a rich man. He was an aristocratic man. He was a man who had great wealth. He had servants. He had property. He had land. But he had one thing he could not solve. He had a son who was at the point of death. And that man made his way to Jesus. And Jesus stopped for that man. And that man said, sir, would you come with me? And Jesus, Jesus looked at him and he said sir please come down ere my son die and Jesus was very personal with that man I think about the widow there in Luke the Luke chapter 7 I think it is the widow of Nain how they were carrying the casket and they were walking out, out through the gate and Jesus caught them and met them right there I think about Zacchaeus and how Jesus met Zacchaeus and Zacchaeus went up to a tree to see Jesus and Jesus came to that tree he looked up at him he said Zacchaeus came down hey he knew Zacchaeus by name I think about blind Bartimaeus who was on the roadside crying out he came to Jesus personally I think about the 
the Syrophoenician woman and her daughter who, was, who had demons. Think with me for a minute. Jesus walked many miles up, way up there to that era of Syrophoenicia there of Tyre and Zidon. He went up there for a Gentile woman. He didn't go for a Jewish woman. He went there for a Gentile woman just for one person alone that he could help that, la- that lady with her daughter. And he kind of put her to the test to see how, how, how much she meant business about wanting her daughter to get well. And Jesus proved, put her through that. He vetted her through that process. And he said, great is thy faith, woman. Your daughter today shall be healed. I think about how Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus. I'm saying today, Jesus meets you and I personally. He's personal his involvement. I'm thankful from the very moment I got saved, the very first time I was telling the staff today, the very first time how I got a gospel track and I received that track and I didn't really understand it and I looked at all the things that were there but I saw those verses of scripture and then I didn't understand it and something about it just spoke to my heart as a 14 year old boy. I'm thankful that through that process God was working and weeks later on a Thanksgiving weekend 40, 47, 48 years ago, I received Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. I'm thankful for that, that Jesus came to me personally. And I'm thankful he didn't abandon me after he saved me. I'm thankful he's been faithfully to me with me since December 4th, 1971. I'm thankful I get to celebrate in a few days that I've been saved. Let me think here, about 48 years here. That's longer than some of you have been born. Longer than some of you have been alive here, amen? And I and imagine just, I remember when I hit my first anniversary, I've been saved. I said, this is wonderful. I wonder how long it's going to go for. Thank God I can say I've been saved 48 years. He's never failed me yet. He's a personal Savior. I'm thankful for Jesus because he's personal. I'm thankful Jesus, he comes alongside of us when we need him most. We have a personal Savior. Notice secondly, if you would with me tonight, we have a Savior not only who's personal, but you notice tonight, I'm thankful for Jesus because he's powerful. He's not a weak Savior. He's not a weak Jesus. He's not an impotent Jesus. He's not a Jesus who flakes out on us. He's not a Jesus that doesn't show up. Let me tell you tonight, Jesus is all-powerful. Go with me to Mark chapter 5 with me tonight. I want you to see some things this evening about how powerful our Savior is. Yeah, he comes alongside of us, and he gets involved with us. And in Matthew chapter 11, he says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And I remind you tonight that there are a lot of us who have burdens, and a lot of people, just like the people we're going to visit here in a moment, who've got burdens. But I'm going to tell you this evening, we have a powerful Savior in Jesus Christ. He is so powerful he can meet every need. Notice if you would as we look at Matthew, Mark chapter 5, would you notice several places and things that our Savior is very powerful in, that we see the power of God at work in lives. First of all, would you notice Jesus Christ has power over every disaster. He has power over every disaster. Look at Mark 5, excuse me, Mark chapter 4. In Mark chapter 4, the closing part of the scripture, in verse 36, Jesus calls his disciples, these are the early days of the ministry, he says, get on the ship with me, and we're going to go on the other side. Now, he didn't explain to them why they needed to get the other side. He didn't tell them at that moment of time what they were going to do on the other side. All he wanted them to do is just get on the ship, and they were going to get on the other side. Now, for those guys, that was just something they, they, they had done many times before. They'd been on the city of Galilee before. They've gone to the other side before. They've experienced that. They knew that how to navigate through those waters. They'd been through the storms. If you know anything about the Sea of Galilee, it's at a level way below sea level. And where it's at below sea level, the heat and cold temperatures and, and, uh, and, and the altitude and all those things that are going on there, or the, or the low descent where it's at, causes the, causes the, 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 the pressure system to touch. 
that storms can come very suddenly on the Sea of Galilee there. And so they're there. If you'll notice this passage of Scripture, going to verse 37, uh, verse 37, the Bible says there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. Now, you might read through that very quickly and not grasp it, but this was a very epic, uh, this was a storm of epic proportion. In verse 37, it says a great storm of wind. The wind was blowing. It was like hurricane force. This wind was blowing, and the waves, the Bible says, beat into the ship. In other words, the beating of the waves were pounding on the ship and pounding so hard you could hear the thing creak and it sounded like it was about to come apart. You know, sometimes when the storms and winds of life blow into your life, you feel like you're going to come apart. You feel like you're going to come to pieces. You feel like you can't take anymore. Then to make matters even worse, as the wind is blowing, as the ship is creaking back and forth, and one of it's going to collapse, the wind was stirring up the water to, to such a degree, the water came into the boat. Now, not just water coming in the boat, the water, the Bible says, filled the boat. In fact, it was now full. The context here is there was more water in the boat than they really needed to have, and the boat was starting to sink because of the weight of the water was causing the boat to sink. Now, you talk about a trial and a difficulty. You feel like things are coming apart. The wind's blowing you aside. You can't even stand up straight, and then on top of that, the water's inside your boat. You can't dish it out fast enough. The water's coming to your boat, and it's sinking, and now you're at, you're at level with the water. You're kind of wondering what's going to happen, and these guys here, they're in panic mode. They're in a disaster. Everything's coming apart. They're kind of like the people Brother Carlos referred to up where he lives that went through the firestorm this past year. When that comes, you don't have no, you don't have time to think except to get out of there. They're going through a disaster. Notice what happens here in verse 38. And so they're, they're concerned about what's going on, and Jesus is in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. Let me tell you tonight, no storm ever bothers Jesus. No cancer ever bothers Jesus. No heart attack ever bothers Jesus. No firestorm ever bothers Jesus. No earthquake ever bothers Jesus. He's asleep on a pillow, and they woke him. And notice this. Notice the faith of these men. They had zero faith. In fact, they had negative faith. They said, Master, what a, what a contradictory statement. They say, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Don't you realize, Jesus, don't you care? We, we're going to perish. They weren't just talking about themselves. They said, Jesus, you're going to perish with us too. And that's how a lot of people, when they don't have faith and trust in God, they feel that the trial is bigger than God and that God is incapable of helping them. And so Jesus gets up right now. And you notice the Bible says he, he rose. And I like this. This is how loving our Savior is. He didn't rebuke them first. He rebuked the wind first. Can I tell you tonight? Jesus has power over disasters. He rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, peace, be still. You mark this down. If there's three words you need to still every storm, it's the three words of Jesus, peace, be still. He, call, he called it out what it was and it became still. And the Bible says the wind ceased and there was a great calm. I'm telling you tonight, Jesus Christ has power over disaster. I don't know what disaster you're going to go into or you're coming out of, but he has power over that disaster. Secondly, what you notice in chapter 5, oh, verses 1 to 20, Jesus has power over demons. Now you probably don't see it, but we are in a demon energized society. Drug addiction, Opiate abuse, covetousness, I mean, we name it, strongholds. I said this when we went through Romans chapter 1 a couple of weeks ago. A lot of the immorality that's even past that, which is unnatural behavior, is demonization. And Jesus had a reason for going to the other side because God, he put the storm in the life of these men because they need to see the power of God. Because you watch as we go from chapter four to chapter five, everything's about the power of God. He goes to the area of Gadara. 
The Bible says in verse 2, when he got, when he came out of the ship, immediately we are told about a man who came out of the tombs, out of the cemetery, out of the caves where bodies were buried. A man with an unclean spirit. And every demonic possession is an unclean spirit. It's a filthy, dirty, vile, abominable spirit. There's nothing clean, there's nothing good about Satan. Everything about Satan is wicked and dirty and filthy. Next time you are tempted to go into some kind of temptation, remind yourself the spirit that is speaking to you is an unclean spirit. And any kind of spirit that tells you to be divisive, any kind of spirit that tells you to, that, that, that takes away your peace, it is an unclean spirit. And so notice this man came in the description here. This man was a homeless man. He had his dwelling among the tombs. He couldn't live anywhere except among dead bodies there. This man lived among those who were buried. The Bible says no man could tame him, not even with chains. This man had unnatural strength and ability to break chains and fetters, if you would. This man was in a very terrible state. His mind was all messed up. He had, his soul was all messed up. This man could not sleep at night. This man had no appetite. The Bible says he had been often bound with fetters and chains. This man was a wild man. He was a man that was out of control. Listen, anytime Satan takes control of everything you have, let me tell you what, you're going to be a person out of control. You're out of your mind. You're, you don't think straight. You don't talk straight. You're not straight about anything you do. And the Bible says here, this man, he broke the chains asunder. He had, he, had, he had strength that was not natural to man. Those demons were working because those demons said, we're not going to be bound by man. And the Bible says he broke it in pieces. The Bible says no man could tame him. And notice verse 5, the restlessness this man went through. Always at night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. The cutting himself with stones, suicide and wrist splitting and things like that, that's nothing new. That was going on in those days there too. There's nothing new under the sun. Listen, when the devil gets so, so much control of you, know what the devil says? Take your life. Cut your wrist. To overdose on some medication. Go put your head in the sand. Something like that. The devil is the author of death. He has the power of death. But I'm going to tell you, even though the devil has the power of death, our Savior Jesus Christ has the power of life. This man was in a mess. No doctor could help this man. Let me just tell you this tonight. When doctors are at their wit's end, what they're taught to do under Western medicine is write you a prescription. And the prescriptions get progressively worse and worse and worse. And I can tell you, I can take you home after home after home. They ultimately lead to lithium and Prozac. The major side effect of Prozac is suicidal tendencies. Brother Long and I, several years ago, we were getting ready for our anniversary weekend. This is maybe 2009, 2010, something like that. I just finished preaching midweek service. Like Brother Long came up to me, he's a pastor. He said, and he was our youth director at that time. And Brother Long said, hey, hey you remember the, the, this, this young man? I said, I do. He says, hey, I just got a call from the dad. and This is really bad. He, he took his life. I said, what? I said, hey, give me, give me a couple minutes. I'll drive out there. You give me the directions. We'll get out there. So I said, can you, can you come with me? He said, yeah. So we got in the car went out there. It was, a rough, it was a rough night out there. It was raining like this. It was a lawless night. We, we probably had five or six police cars on that main road past us going the opposite direction. We didn't have GPS and all that kind of stuff at that time. GPS was just a new technology just coming out. We found our way there. Parked on him on a semi-hill. Long called him up, said we were here. Father came out. Father was heartbroken. He's besides himself. 
He told us what happened. His brother came out, told us, I cut my brother down. He was hanging from the rafters. I cut my brother down. I asked the father, I said, uh, was your son on medication? He said, yeah, he was. Why do you ask? I said, can I see the medication? When the house brought out the pill bottle, you ask Brother Long, he'll, he'll validate my story to you. He brought the pill bottles out. I looked at it. Prozac. 18-year-old boy. 18-year-old boy. I said, did they tell you the side effects of medication? No. I said, that's what happened to your son. And I'm going to tell you tonight, they don't, whatever medicine says is not going to cure you. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. You said, well, you're just in cliche. No, Jesus is all the difference. Jesus is all the difference. And you can imagine as we get to verse 5, the disciples were looking at this man, and, they're, and, and you know, their hair is standing up. I dealt with one where it was a very similar situation. I told two of our deacons about it. They said, Pastor, can we go with you? Because I'd been there the week before with my wife, and we stayed at 3 o'clock and 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning. It was rough. It was rough. I didn't flinch. I kept reading the Bible, kept praying over that. I mean, the, the, the noises came out of that person's voice. They were not natural noises. Two deacons, they're here. one of them's here tonight. They came with me. They said, we'll go with you, Pastor. I said, are you ready? I said, I hope you're prayed up for tonight. Okay, if you're not prayed up, I don't want you to go. They said, we're ready, Pastor. I said, okay, you sure you're ready now? Because don't, don't, don't bail out on me when we go in there. And we went in there. It was, it was, it was very enlightening, and I'll say that. We were there for a long time that night working through it. They finally realized what was going on and they knew what their Bibles. Those men know their Bibles and they, they got their Bibles out, started praying, reading with me on what we were doing. And sometimes you see situations like that. And I walk through a park, I walk through a mall, I look on a BART train, look at people get on the airplanes. You know there's something not right. Actually, even they come to church, you know something's not right. Those men here were scared. The Bible says in verse 6, when he saw Jesus, he didn't come to Jesus. Jesus came to him. Jesus came to that man's life, and he cured him by his power and by his word. And he said in verse 8, come out of him, thou unclean spirit. And he did, which is part of the, part of the when you're dealing with issues, like, what is your name? You need to know the name so you can deal with them. He says, what is thy name? And he answered, said, my name is Legion for many. And he besought him that he would not send him away out of the country and so forth there. But Jesus set that man free. Now, you, you scroll down a little bit later, notice this. They sent those demons. There were thousands of demons in that man. Can you imagine that? What kind of stuff was that man involved with? What happened in his family life that a thousand demons would be in that man? Two thousand demons. Notice verse 15. And this is no joking matter, man. They come to Jesus and see him that was possessed with the devil and had the legion. They saw what he was like. But what they saw him now was different. When they saw him before, they saw night. When they saw him now, they saw light. And the Bible says they saw him sitting and clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Can I tell you what? Jesus is power over demons. His power and demon over those things. Listen, if your mind is bothered, your soul is in turmoil, you need to realize tonight, you need to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. Christ has power over demons. Christ has power over disaster. Christ has power over disease. Look at later on, Jesus is continuing his journey there. And as he makes his way down there, 
man by the name of Jairus comes to him. He says, hey, my daughter is at the point of death. Would you come to my home? And Jesus says, absolutely, I'll go with you. The Bible says in verse 24, Jesus went with him. Much people followed him. But along the way, the Bible tells us between verses 25 and I think the verse to 34, it tells a story about this woman. We don't know her name. But this woman, this woman had suffered for 12 years. When I mean suffered, I mean underscore and bold. She suffered. The Bible says she had a, she had a, a issue of blood for 12 years. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a very, very uh, sanitized way of basically saying that she had a strong, a very terrible hemorrhaging problem. She hemorrhaged blood. She just, she was, she was in bad, bad shape. And this woman was sick and she was ill. She had more bad days than good days. And the Bible says she spent up all that she had with doctors and was none the better. What a terrible thing. She spent up everything she had, all of her resources, was none the better. But to make matters worse, worse than having this infirmity of the flesh, what was even worse, as a Jewish woman, she was considered unclean and could not participate in the Jewish ceremony. So she was ceremonially declared unclean. So now you have this woman who's in need of help. She's in need of just being around people to encourage her, but they won't let her come near because she's considered ceremonial unclean. What kind of religion is it that you have that doesn't let people come to church? And what kind of religion is that you have that doesn't let people get saved? What kind of religion is that? And those old Jews had no religious, you can't come in our midst, and you can't be here, and this woman was desperate, and she had never met Jesus, all she knew about Jesus is what she heard about him, and she heard, she word came to her what Jesus did in Gadara, and word came to her what Jesus did on the other side of Galilee, and she thought, as that word came, she said, you know, if I could just get close enough, I could touch the hem of his garment, if I could just touch the hem, I'll be well, I mean, I don't know about you, but that's great faith, that's greater faith than you and I've got right now, that woman had enough faith to believe, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I can, I can, I can get it, and she saw the throne of people as we read the scripture that were thronging around her and pressing on her but she made her way there and somehow she got there she got close enough she grabbed the hem of his garment she touched it and the bible says she felt instantaneous that moment that she that she'd been cured from this this issue of blood look what it says later on i think it's verse 27 28 it says, no, verse 29, it says, a straight way, the fountain of her blood was dried up. She stopped hemorrhaging. It stopped. She was cured. She felt like she was when she was normally healthy 12 years before, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. Underline that word plague. I said this on Sunday. The word plague is also translated the same word corrupt. She realized that the corruption that was in her body had now stopped. It was cured. It was not going to bother anymore. Can I tell you what? When you get Jesus in your life, and your sin is forgiven and washed away, the corruptness is taken away because we no longer have the corruption that is in the world through lust. And the Bible touched it, says that she was healed of that, that plague. And, and Jesus knew that virtue went out. I mean, he knew who it was, but he turned around and said, who touched me? He wanted that woman to come forth to give a profession of her faith. Can I tell you something tonight? If you're saved and you've never made a profession of your faith, that's the next thing you do. Jesus wants you to, he's asked the question, who touched me? Who came to me? He wants you to declare publicly that you're not ashamed of him. He wants you to declare publicly that he's done something in your life, that he saved you from your sins, that he's taken away your sins, that you're now a child of God. And that woman came forward and gave a profession of her faith in Jesus Christ. And he said, daughter, thy faith has made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague or of thy corruption. Hey, thank God tonight, Jesus has power over disaster and Jesus has power over disease and Jesus has power over demons. But notice one other thing in this chapter, Jesus has the power over death. Now remember, Jesus is on his way to the house of Jairus. And Jairus is thinking, okay, now, he stopped to help this lady, but what about my daughter? And just a side thought, aren't you glad that when you're praying and there's lots of other believers praying at the same time, Jesus hears all of our prayers? 
And he's at work in all of our lives. The woman was cured. Jesus went back with Jairus. And I only can imagine as a father that Jairus was just really getting stressed out here for a little bit there. And then notice verse 35. They had hardly turned around. And a servant came from Jairus' house. And he bluntly said, thy daughter is dead. Why trouble sell the master any further? That's how a lot of people think about Jesus. Why are you troubling Jesus? Can I tell you something this evening? Jesus never troubled with your problems. He's never troubled with your requests. And Jesus went there. Look at verse 36. He said to them, he be not afraid, only believe. That be not afraid, only believe, we just, is translated just believe. We just said, just believe. Just believe. Just have faith, Jairus. Jairus' wife, Peter, James, and John, took him inside that bedroom. He took the hand of that little girl and brought her back to life. Jesus has power over death. Let me tell you something tonight. That doesn't mean we're not going to die in this life. But it does mean this. Death is the last enemy. He's conquered death. When he rose again from the dead, he conquered death. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 55 to 57. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Contextually, that victory is the victory over death. Hey, thank God tonight, when this whole body is laid in the grave, I'm not dead, I'm alive, because I'm in the presence of my Savior. I like what the writer of There's a Fountain Filled with Blessing that last stands. He said, when this poor listening, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. I'll sing thy power to save. I'll sing thy power to save. Then a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. Hey, I'm thankful for Jesus tonight. I'm thankful for Jesus because he's personal. I'm thankful for Jesus because he's powerful. But as we close tonight, I'm thankful for Jesus because he's precious. 1 Peter chapter 2. Ye also, verse 5, ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore, it is contained in the scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Notice verse 7. Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious. He's precious. I read the other day on November 20th that uh, someone last year had a substantial loss from the campfire up north up there in paradise. And they're making a claim against Pacific Gas and Electric PG&E for, the, for an amount of $280 million for a 500-pound emerald that he said he lost in the fire. A 500-pound emerald that he said he lost in the fire. PG&E's asking for documentation that that man really owned this, but he said, it, I weighed it, I, I'm gonna prove it to you. It weighed 500 pounds, and it's worth $280 million. He lost his emerald in the fire and wanted back his worth. As far as that man's concerned, that's a major loss. Can I tell you something tonight? Jesus is more precious than that emerald that he lost in the fire. 
Jesus is more precious than that emerald. Thank God for Jesus, he's precious to us. He's inestimable in value. He's more precious than the gold in fourth knocks. Jesus is more precious than your net worth and my net worth and whatever we have. He's more precious than all the assets we have in this church. By the way, how many of you would agree with me that without Jesus, we have a zero net worth, amen? I like the song that we sang on Sunday night that about where it says, I'd rather have Jesus. He said this, I, he's fairer than lilies of rarest bloom. He's sweeter than honey from out of the comb. He's all that my hungry soul needs, my uh, spirit needs. I'd rather have Jesus than let him lead. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand. He is precious. The songwriter wrote this, Jesus is all the world to me, my life, my joy, Joy, my all. He is my strength from day to day. Without him, I would fall. When I am sad, to him I go. No other one can cheer me so. When I am sad, he makes me glad. He's my friend. I'm thankful tonight. There's so much I can say about this, but I'm thankful tonight that he is precious to me. I'm thankful for Jesus tonight. Are you? I said I'm thankful to, for Jesus. Are you? A Dutch diamond collector was seeking for a very rare diamond. He put news out there to all the wholesalers and retailers of diamonds. Do you have this rare diamond I'm looking for? A man by the name of Harry Winston, a very famous man who deals with diamonds, had a location in New York City, and he's contacted that man. He says, sir, I understand you're looking for this rare diamond. I believe I have the diamond that you're looking for. Would you come and make an appointment with me? This rare diamond collector said, I certainly will. Made his appointment on that appointed day. They both met in Harry Winston's location there at his store. He took him to the back. They sat down, had a cup of coffee together. He says, listen, I'm going to bring my best salesman in. I want him to tell you all about the features of this diamond. I want to make sure it meets every demand that you have. And that salesman, who was very knowledgeable and extremely, extremely knowledgeable about diamonds, sat down and started explaining all the features about this diamond to the man and telling about all these different things about it. But somehow the way the man did it was kind of just more academic than anything else. And as he explained it, after about 10 minutes, the man put his hand up and stopped. He, he pushed his chair back and he just got up, put all his papers together, put his bag, and he started to walk out. Well, Harry Winston had been looking from a, from, a, from a window from behind. It was kind of those two-way windows there. And he looked from behind. He saw the man had gotten agitated and the man no longer wanted to conduct business. Immediately, Harry Winston came through the other door and he stopped him and said, sir, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. He said, before you leave, would you give me a few minutes with you about this diamond? He asked the salesman to go sit on the other side of the room there and as he did so, the man sat in the room. The man sat down with Harry Winston somewhat reluctantly and Harry Winston started to go through the diamond with him and before you know it, in less than seven or eight minutes that he had papers out, this man signed papers to buy that rare diamond from Harry Winston. They shook hands, and after the deal was consummated, they're about to walk out outside that, that storeroom. The man, the dealer, stopped. He said, Mr. Winston, there's something just I can't get over right now. He said, what's that, sir? I can't get over why in the world your salesman explained to me what you just told me, but I wanted what you told me so badly that I signed the papers to buy the diamond. He said, what, why, how did that happen? He said, why was it so easy for me to say no to your salesman and yes to you? Mr. Winston had a smile on his face. He said, sir, that salesman is one of the best experts on diamonds you'll find anywhere in the world. He's one of the greatest, most knowledgeable men you'll find anywhere in the world. But that's why I hired this man to work for me and I pay him a great salary. 
But he said, sir, I would pay him double that amount of money if he possessed what I possess about him, what I possess about diamonds. They said, I would gladly pay him twice as much if he could do what I do. You see, he said this, you see, he knows diamonds, but I love them. And I say to you tonight as I close, you know Jesus, but do you love Jesus? You know Jesus, but how much are you in love with him? I say to you tonight as we think about Thanksgiving, thank God for your turkey tonight, and thank God for your food, and thank God for your appetite, and thank God for your family, you should. Thank God for your church and all those things. And I hope you including with that, you thank God for everybody in the church, and I hope you thank God for the word of God, and I hope thank God tonight that you thank him for your salvation, and I hope you thank God tonight for what he's put in your life and the spiritual counsel he's put in your life. But I want to tell you tonight, you better be thankful for Jesus above everything else. You better be thankful Jesus is your Savior. You better be thankful tonight he's the Lord who's our shepherd. You better be thankful tonight that he's the Lord who heals. And you better be thankful tonight that he's the Lord who's our righteousness. And you better be thankful tonight that he's the Lord who's holy. You better be thankful tonight he's the Lord that is with you and not against you. You better be thankful tonight that Jesus died for your sins and rose again from the dead. And be thankful tonight that he's coming again one day for you and I. I'm thankful for Jesus.